0: Today is August 27th, 2020. My guest is Robert Chittister. Bob is an educational entrepreneur and filmmaker who has spent most of his career creating video resources to help people understand market economies and the power of economic liberty. With Milton and Rose Friedman, he created the acclaimed PBS series Free to Choose. He created the Idea Channel, an archive of over 200 interviews with leading scholars, including F.A. Hayek, Norman Borlaug. Thomas Sowell and James Buchanan. He created IZIT, I Z Z I T, which produces resources for teachers in the classroom. Bob,
1: welcome to Econ Talk. It's a delight to be here, Russ, and compliment you on your ongoing efforts with Econ Talk. Very important. Thank you. Doing what I can. Uh,
0: you began your career in public television. Uh, how did you end up working with Milton
1: Friedman? Oh, boy. Well, I'm going to try to keep my answers as short as possible. But uh, it, it, uh, I want to start, though, with me in college. I enrolled at the University of Michigan in their engineering department. Because in high school, I, I, was, I was sharp enough that, for example, in algebra, I could mainly figure out what the answers were. Uh, but I wasn't disciplined enough to, to learn the, the process. So my first blue book, and I was great in chemistry and physics and all that, so the professor who taught those, he urged me, oh, Bob, you should be an engineer, this, that, and the other thing. I didn't have much understanding of what an engineer might be. Um, so I entered the University of Michigan as an engineer, and um, my first algebra blue book put the end to that. I, I know I had the lowest score in the class. It was like a 40 or 41 or something. <laughs> And I and I knew that I didn't have a clue uh, what 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 the process of algebra was. So I I had a scholarship from the Navy. Had I had I not had that scholarship, I might have transferred to the music school um, because my dream, up until I was thirty years old, was that I wanted to be the next Bing Crosby, um, and and I. Uh, I finally got rid of that unrealistic assumption, um, and, and but the important thing was then. So I had to pick. Uh, I had to pick a curriculum to move to, and the Navy would not allow me to go into music. I guess they understood that wouldn't be of great help <laughs> out there on the destroyer or whatever. So I chose radio and television, just because I thought, well. If I'm going to have a musical career, I'm going to be singing on radio on t v so I may as well study that i mean it was it's just crazy, Russ, how I ended up but but basically what it did was and it took a while not too long but to understand me understand the creative artistic creative bent that was inside me, which has made all the difference in terms of the projects I've undertaken um uh, and and the results from them, uh, as Peter Betke, and I'm, I was always so gratified that Peter felt this way, uh, the Freedmans the would disagree with him. Uh, he ha- maintains to this day that Free to Choose is a better book than Capitalism and Freedom because it is more accessible. That because it's uh, the transcripts of the TV show uh, converted into a book. The average reader can can get more out of it than they can out of capitalism and freedom, which is a little bit heavier heavier uh, ch- uh, trip.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a more um, demanding read. I, I I have recommended both books at various times to different types of people. Obviously, um, they they both um, they're both worth reading, but they, they're very different. Uh, I'm not going to weigh on which one's better. Uh, but I, I, I No, no, no.
1: And, and in effect, it's a silly way to approach it because they both have their role. And and from my point of view, I'd love to have everybody read both of them, but it, but it might very well be that they start with Free to Choose and then go to Capitalism and Freedom. Uh, when we do our events at Capitaph, the Friedman's summer home in Vermont, we uh, assign readings and we discuss chapters from both books. So how did
0: you how did you come to work with uh, Milton Rose on that TV series, which became which was the genesis for the book, and uh, the book actually came out before the series went on the air, but the book was preceded by the by the filming and
1: those transcripts. Yeah, well, before I ever became uh, uh, an entity uh, in the freedom movement that people would recognize in any way, I I followed up on my radio and TV. I, I came from the university, to, uh, well, I did, I did two years in Saginaw setting up a system in a high school. But I came to this area to work with a, a, what was then a state teacher's college and was immediately thrown into the mix of people here in Erie who were working to bring an educational television station to Erie. And through the fact that I was the only one in the entire group they were mainly educators. Of the superintendent of uh, Erie, Erie County, superintendent of schools, was was in the, in the group. I I essentially became the expert by default. And when it came time to hire a general manager, um, the president of the board of directors of the group that the, that held the license said, "Gee, we better go look for a general manager." And I said, "Well." I agree with you, but I'm going to recluse myself because I'm going to apply. And his answer was, oh, well, then you got the job. (laughs) How old were you? So literally, I was handed the job of building a public television station, which I succeeded at, at great cost. Uh, I I was clinically depressed for about two, three years afterwards because I had pushed so hard uh, to get it done. So I ran that station for 16 years. No. How old were you when you started, Bob? Oh, gosh. I have to be careful there, but I, I was in my late 20s. Okay. So I took on building this TV station, never having done any of that, and I succeeded. But then I also, and this, of course, everybody today knows that Bob never hesitates to share his ideas or to, or, or to tell you what he thinks, uh, and So I became involved in the politics of PBS at the national level. And I'm from this tiny little station in Erie, but I go to these events and I engage in the debate over what our policy should be. I, I, I admit to one thing. People think of me, they think, oh, well, you were probably liberal and then you became conservative. No, no, not my track. I am an individualist. I recognized that very early in life, even in high school. Uh, And, but I did vote for McGovern. (laughs) And I did so because of the dust-up over communications. Because Nixon was, you know, thinking, well, we're going to censor public television, do this and that. Uh, So I was very involved and outspoken. The reason why that's relevant to get us to Milton Friedman was I also then uh, was ambitious. So I persuaded a local businessman to sponsor an activity in Erie called the National Symposium on Science and Technology. And that was my effort to counter the, the back-to-earth movement that was, that was going on in the late 60s, 70s, and the, and the rejection of technology. And I managed to bring to Erie a fairly high-level group of people uh, the mayor came to our dinner in the evening, and he said, I've never seen so many corporate jets at the airport. Now, that was because I was introduced to Ed David, who, who was at one point head of the National Science, something or other. Uh, but he introduced me to another pe- number of people, and Alan, W. Allen Wallace was one of them. W. Allen Wallace at that time was ch- chancellor of the University of Rochester. And he was also chairman of the board of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And it was a fascinating encounter meeting because Alan couldn't believe there was a public TV station manager who held the views I did. And I had not paid much attention to the hierarchy at CPB. And I was astonished that now I'm dealing with the guy who's the chairman of the organization, that hands out grants to public TV stations. Galbraith series goes on the air in the mid 70s. John Kenneth Galbraith. Yep. Uh, And and he he did a series uh, tied to his book, The Age of Uncertainty. And I by then have established a relationship with Alan Wallace and I made it clear to him I said, boy, this is too bad that there's not a response to this. What they did do was they stuck people for about five minutes at the end of each of the programs to do a counter statement to whatever Galbraith had said. From a, from a communications point of view, that was a, a throwaway. It accomplished nothing. So Alan agreed that well, there ought to be something. And, and, I, and I said, I've got some ideas. He said, well, share them with me. I put together a little, uh, on a pad, some ideas. He said, okay, and I'm sitting in his office, and he picks the phone up and calls Milton Friedman. Now, I have to admit that I'm not sure I knew who Milton Friedman was at that point in time. But within a five-minute phone call, Alan uh, persuaded Milton to meet with me in January of 1977, Milton had retired from the university, mandatory retirement at 65. University of Chicago. Right, University of Chicago, and, and uh, had won the Nobel Prize in, in, in 76. Um, and uh, so he agreed, and he said, well, when we get back from Stockholm, we, we're going into a sublet apartment in San Francisco, and Bob can meet us there. And that's how I got to meet Milton and Rose. And the concept, uh,
0: for people who haven't seen it, how, how did the, each episode work? What was the, the way that the series was organized? How many parts was it? Do you remember? I, I want to say 16. Yeah. There's 10, 10
1: hours. 10, 10 hours, okay. Yeah. And the model in my mind, by the way, not in terms of content, but in terms of feel, in terms of style, was Jacob Bronowski's Ascent of Man. And on the other hand, Milton, and he was a quick learn, but early on he didn't have much sense of of he'd been on a lot of TV talk shows, but had no sense of what it would take to do a uh, major series. Um, so he he got this idea. He said, Bob, uh, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich is going to publish the book associated with this, and they've also agreed they they like the idea and. They, they're going to put up $150,000 so that I can do a total of 15 lectures across the country, uh, with, and you will, with your remote van, record those, those uh, presentations and the Q&A. And he said, then you can just stick pictures on there, and that'll be the TV series. Well, yeah. I thought illustration <laughs> was the best way to counter that, so I didn't push hard. About five uh, about five of those lectures in, Milton uh, kind of sheepishly l- looks me in the eye and said, "Well, Bob, uh, you were right. I can see this ain't going to work the way I had in mind, and now I'm stuck having to do ten more lectures. <laughs> 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 those ten, le- those fifteen lectures are available. Milton speaks. They're available on our website, and they are interesting in that they uh, they're they're like." And part of my my strategy and everything is leverage. You do a TV series, and you make it as exciting and interesting, lots of stories and people in. And what's your goal? Well, your goal is then to get them to read the book. And if you can get them to read the book, then maybe they'll also watch more or more of those lectures that that you 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 look at your your effort in a project way not a tv series a tv series plus this plus this plus this plus this to gain the leverage so um, he gave those
0: lectures but that was not the only thing even though he changed maybe oh, no. his style so how did the, how does an episode unfold uh when you in the finished product
1: well in the finished product first of all we um the very first night that I met with Milton, we talked about my background, what I'd done, what I hadn't done, and I made it very clear to him that I was proposing to undertake something that I had never done, uh, and and that was, and that was in my mind, at the top of the documentary game, meaning expensive to do, uh, wide ranging in terms of, of subject matter. Um, and, uh, so, uh, with that in mind, we, and, and Milton in that early discussion, uh, before he and Rosa had agreed to do it, I pointed out to them, I said, Milton, here's some things I've done. And I said, I'm happy to share with you. Uh, I'd done a swimming meet for, uh, for ESPN, uh, And I'd done some concerts out of Chautauqua, et cetera. And I said, but it's, so I have done things, but we're gonna go and hire the best documentary maker we can find in the world. So, and my goal and my role for you is to ensure that in the role of executive producer, I have the ultimate say as to what happens And I can then guarantee what goes on the screen is what you want, not what the producer wants on the screen. Because in these kinds of situations, obviously producers are creative and and they are not above wanting to insert their perspective in in the creative process. Well, as executive producer, then I can step in and say, hey, no, that's not going to happen. Milton wants it this way. We also arranged that Rose would be associate producer, which was kind of an unusual arrangement. So now I have a producer, I have Milton and Rose as a team and how they did it was the following. First of all, we sketched out uh, what the 10 programs would in general cover. Uh, And and, uh, the points the critical points that Milton wanted to make on equality, on the markets, et cetera. Then the producer and his team, they go to work to come up with ideas of where do we tell these stories? What, what examples can we find? Uh, uh, and when you watch the series, you'll see we go to India and we show Milton and he goes to a a small village, and he's standing there by the hand weavers and able to talk. He's in Fennell uh, 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 Market in Boston buying tomatoes and talking about the marketplace that way. So the producer and his team of people, they're identifying where they think they can do each of the segments in the hour program. I'm sorry, I want to be clear. The documentaries were only a half hour long. And then there was the half-hour debate following. But the documentaries then were all laid out in terms of, okay, we're going to start here. We're going to end up in India. We're going to do some taping in Greece. We're going to do this. And then, how does it happen when they're actually there? And this is the difference. Uh, This is what sets Milton apart. There was no script. There was no written (laughs) script So that when he got uh, uh, to that Indian village, uh, he had already been written out and he was going to memorize it or something. Well, you can imagine no way would Milton do that. And so what they did was every night he and and Mike Latham and Rose would sit down together and say, all right, tomorrow, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be going to this hand weaver. And by the way, Milton, here are the two or three key points that you wanted to make with regard to that story. And they'd go out and shoot it, ad lib. Yeah. And Mike Latham was the director? He was the producer. The producer. Uh, the ma- yeah, actually, producer, director. I think he held both, both roles. So I'm not
0: surprised he'd improvise. He was pretty good on his feet. You know, I took his uh, last class. Uh, At Ah. the University of Chicago in 1976, uh, when I was a first-year grad student, he offered a non-credit class for first-year grad students. And what he would do, and we all took it because, (laughs) of course, uh, what he would do is he'd stand in the front of the class and we'd ask him questions. And I don't know if I've ever told the story in Talk before, but I'll tell it again if I have, which is that uh, at the University of Chicago – at the end of your first year, you have to pass an exam that's uh, not pro forma. It's pretty uh, tough. About uh, uh, two-thirds of the people fail the exam. Uh, so it's a, they, they would let in a lot more people than they expected to graduate. And it was uh, Is, this, a, is
1: this specifically an econ? Yeah. This is the core. Okay. We called it the core. It was called
0: yeah. the core exam. Okay. And uh, when you got to Chicago in graduate school, uh, a lot then, I don't know what it's like now, but then the first thing you did is you went to the office of the department and you bought – a Xerox of all the past exams, so you could start studying for what was coming eight to eight or nine months later. Uh, so people had varying degrees of stress about that um, and and prep. I would guess, <laughs> as you might expect. But um, what we would do is we'd ask Milton questions off that exam that we couldn't answer, <laughs> uh-huh. and he he would answer them on his feet. Uh it's a, it was a comfort to us. He didn't answer them all easily. Um yeah. uh, many of them of course were questions that didn't quote have a right answer per se. They were yeah. they were very yeah. open-ended. But uh we we enjoyed that. And, and and in the beginning of that class, fairly early on, he won the Nobel Prize. It was a pretty yeah. exciting it was a pretty exciting time. But he was very quick on his feet. But I want you to talk about uh what made him such an effective communicator. He he I think you could say he was One of the two great economic communicators of the 20th century with, you could argue, Keynes was another great one. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Milton had some unusual abilities, uh, one of which he was very quick on his feet. But what else do you think was, was valuable to him? What made him so effective?
1: Well, I'm going to answer that. And if I can, if I have it here in my pile of things, I'm going to read you a poem. But my answer to that is his inexhaustible curiosity Mm -hmm. and what that does is uh is that in any conversation exchange with anyone um, milton very quickly in most cases makes it clear to the other person that they're important and as a result you end up with a, you you end up with an environment in which you have a natural, spontaneous discussion. No pretension, no games being played. And when when Milton asks you a question, you don't have the feeling that he's just doing it pro forma to be nice, but that he truly does have an interest in who you are and what your interests are. And you've not done it does is also creates a situation in which he then, and he often did, can play on those interests in relating a point with regard to economics and by doing so in an area that you are already comfortable in. It's, it's an area that, 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 that's part of your life, therefore he has the opportunity to give you an example about, we know it was private property costs, opportunity costs, whatever issue we wanted to share with you. But he does it in the context of, of subject matter that you're familiar and comfortable with. And of course, that's a powerful, powerful tool in terms of getting people to consider your
0: ideas. And you mentioned that after the 30 minutes of Milton standing in a village in India, having spoken yeah. about, say, hand weaving, there was a the the last hour of, of the Free to Choose series, each episode was quote, a debate. What was
1: the nature of that? Well, the nature of that was, and by the way, that was that idea came up from the Brits, from Michael Latham. I, I failed to mention Michael was with the BBC. We worked with a group in in Britain that agreed to hire him away from the BBC, give him other work after he did Free to Choose. Because otherwise, he would not have wanted to give up his, his uh, situation at the BBC. And so it was Michael who came to me fairly early in our process and said, Bob, I think we ought to – initially, we were thinking of, of doing 10 one-hour documentaries. And Michael said, no. He said, look, this is a master of debate milton is he, he is heads and shoulders above anybody else we should take advantage of that which we did and then but there was an interesting dimension to it the brits were were very used to paying people mm-hmm. to be on those panels that's not something at least at that time in in, in my career that we did So Michael and I had an interesting debate about that. He said, well, Bob, I I feel I should offer these people some money. And I said, no, 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 no. So we finally agreed that if somebody asked, it was okay if he negotiated a price for their participation, but that he wasn't going to offer to anybody. But the people who participated were wide-ranging. Uh, We'd get somebody, I think the woman who was head of the Pennsylvania Consumer Protection. We had her on there. Uh, Then we had Francis Fox-Biven, whom Tom Sowell had this brilliant exchange with. So it was a wide-ranging group. And then we hired Robert McKenzie, who was with the CBC, to be the moderator. And I think that somewhat worked. I think my memory is that Milton and I... Thought we might have had a better moderator, but it but it worked out all right. Um, so, and, so you and you Milton mentioned was brilliant.
0: Yeah, he incredible, um, incredibly quick. Uh, you you mentioned his empathy or his conveying of taking you yeah. seriously as a yep. as an yep. intellectual adversary, which he, which he did. I think there are two other parts of his skill set, and I encourage. Um, I encourage listeners and viewers to go watch and listen to Milton in Action online. Uh, There are a lot of great videos that you have up on your website, Bob, that we'll link to. Um, One of the things that that I I thought there were two pieces to his repertoire that made him so effective as a communicator. Obviously, he was a great, simple stylist as a writer. He wrote incredibly clearly. He wrote um, uh, he was a good storyteller. But but, there were two i thought character traits of his that were very effective. One is that he always smiled if you watch mm. him uh eviscerate um people on on some of those videos intellectually um he always did it with a smile, so uh that made him i think more sympathetic to third parties watching uh yep. their the conversations he was never angry he's never uh, uh, uh mean-spirited. He was always smiling. And he did this, by the way, and I, I've said this before on the program, but I think it's important to emphasize it here. It's hard to remember how much he was in the intellectual wilderness as a young man. And a lot of people who go through that experience end up bitter. Uh, they have a chip on their shoulder. They struggle to, to relate to people who disagree with them. And Milton, for whatever reason, uh, probably genetic, but maybe I know he also worked at it, uh, based on what you've written about him, he he decided or was able to stay calm despite the fact that he was viewed with disdain by yes. by many. Not just disagreed with him, but had no respect for him. Uh, and that was true, by the way, in his scholarship. I, I, I'm going to add that as well because when he first started suggesting that that inflation was a monetary phenomenon and only a monetary phenomenon, he was viewed with great criticism uh, and 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 mocked. And he Mm. stayed strong, uh, but not just stayed strong in his views. He stayed strong without becoming embittered or um, defensive or cruel. And so one of his skills was that demeanor, that cheerful demeanor, which I think was extremely effective with uh, objective observers who didn't have an axe, a horse in the race, an axe to grind. The other thing is that, and this is fun for me as a, because of my intellectual journey, he didn't convey any doubt. He was extremely self-confident, uh, as if his views were so obviously true. Not in an arrogant way; he didn't come across as arrogant, but he never <laughs> conveyed any uh, uncertainty. And as I've gotten older, as listeners and viewers know, I'm uh, I'm obsessed with the um, challenge of knowing what we know. Uh, Milton never. Never conveyed that he was mm-hmm. uh, he was very sure of himself, but not in an arrogant way. Yeah. And he had plenty to be arrogant about. He he, um, oh, yeah. he was a Nobel Prize winner. His intellect was extraordinary. He he was successful in in the academy and in the public sphere. But he didn't. He he was able to um, uh, maintain the common touch, as the, as uh, as Kipling says. Absolutely right.
1: So react to that. What are your what are your thoughts on those points? Well, I want to go back to the very point you started with, which is how does someone endure and remain positive and upbeat the the attacks that are directed at one. Mm-hmm. Um and of course, uh the United States has unfortunately uh, but I, th- but we sh- we should accept the fact that in a democracy, uh, in, a, in, a, in a free market capitalist society, which where where you vote to establish the government, uh, that you are going to have uh, politics is always going to be a brutal game. Yeah. Uh, it didn't take very long before Thomas Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans were were fully prepared to vilify our first president. So. There's a huge, huge question of how they survive. Well, I actually started a project, and we recorded, I think, maybe 20, as much as 20 hours of material that I was calling the Chicago Five. Uh, and, I, and I reflect back to George Will's c- comment when the Soviet uh, Union fell. When he, I think he said the University of Chicago won, the Soviet Union lost. I I narrow it down. It was Milton Friedman who won. In the sense that he he was predisposed, he liked the engagement. He loved the interaction. Whereas somebody like George Stigler, Stigler just would not he didn't want any, any part of any of that kind of yep. uh, public kinds of chess game and Milton just relished it. But he also had refuge And I want to share two things. One, W. Allen Wallace, George Stigler, Milton entered the University of Chicago to start work on their master's degree in the same year. From that point until their death, they were the tightest of friends. When Allen Wallace died, no, Stigler died first. When Stigler died, Milton revealed to me, he said, Bob, now there's only two musketeers. Hmm. There were three musketeers. Now, I then added to that Rose and her brother, Aaron Director. Sure. And in my mind, it was that group of four people that were critical to Milton having a place he could go where uh, he could get some relief, some sense, as well as they were tough on him. Sure. I had dinner at their home in Sea Ranch with just the four of us Aaron, director, Rose, Milton, and me. And this was far enough along in our relationship that I did participate a bit. <laughs> Early on, I would not have said probably a word. But I would say that at least three times, maybe four, maybe five, we're chatting along and then. Aaron would say, Milton, you're just a statist. <laughs> and they'd engage in a, in a discussion debate so that Milton had a chance. He had this place where he could go. Reliable people. He knew that they would treat, they would be honest with him with regard to issues that were important. And I think that made a huge difference in his ability to sustain over, I don't know, what was it, Uh Russ 20, 25 years before he started to have many, many helpers in the field. Yeah. He was just a lone lone soldier. He was
0: a bit of a statist um, in that he was much more pragmatic, I think, than many yeah. of the philosophical um, comrades in in the movement of, of liberty.
1: Um, I, I want to go example of 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 Marshall Fritz in that Marshall wrote at least one little paper, if not, I don't know that he wrote a book, but Milton wrote some forward to it, which I read, and it was very complimentary of Marshall's, and Marshall Fritz's goal was to go back to the early 1800s and get government totally out of schools. So Milton writes a little endorsement of that, but he never pursued that. No. I think he fully understood that was a, that was a step too far in terms of what might be practical within his lifetime, so instead he pulls back to school choice and, and what others would think of as, as compromise.
0: Yeah. Uh, but I want to go back to your point about um, uh, his character and his personality. I, I never thought about this. Um, you know, I was making the point earlier that he was always smiling. Yeah. You know, I, I always thought it was a strategic Aspect of him, I thought part of his his demeanor in those conversations was, was simply strategic, he, he, that he'd be more effective if he was um, smiling. But I, I think you've hit on something that I think I've, I never really thought about enough, which is that he just was enjoying himself. Oh, <laughs> he absolutely. Loved, he loved sparring intellectually for its own sake. It was a um, – I think he just delighted in it and – it was great fun for him. It was never, you know. Here I am being attacked. Um, there's there there there's footage online where you know where people are so cruel to him, mm-hmm. and his reaction is just um, okay. So you've brought your queen out, and now I'm going to respond with my knight. Yeah. You're going yeah. to have to move your queen back. Yeah. It wasn't like oh my gosh yeah. I'm being attacked, <laughs> he, he, which is uh, a human response. But he he would often just. Keep smiling. But I think it, I think it's
1: because he enjoyed it. I, I, I never thought about that. But, uh, and Russ, he enjoyed everything. Yeah. It, it, and he did things with gusto. Yeah. Uh, we're visiting Kapitov. Uh, my son Mark at that time was maybe ten years old. And we were there for three days near the this was in seventy Eight seventy nine. We are near the end and getting starting to worry about marketing and such. So we're there at Capitolf. That's his house. Milton, that's his house in yeah, Vermont. That's right. His summer house in Vermont. Yeah, which he and Rose built. They had a pond on the property, and they had a canoe on it. Well, we're having discussions up at the house, and Milton says to Mark, "Hey, Mark, would you like to go uh, in the canoe? Get out and." Play around with the canoe. Oh, sure. So we were barreling out of the house, jump into his blazer, and he tears down over the hill. I thought he was going to roll us right into the pond. He was so excited and enthusiastic about it. And that's what I witnessed about almost every interaction he had with anybody. It had this excitement about life. And it's one of the things I try to convey to students or anybody. Milton Friedman, and and I don't know how to describe it, but the whole idea of, of what markets mean opened my eyes in a way. I mean, it was just like a totally different world for me once I began to understand the role of markets and the enormous amount of information that's in front of you every second of your life and I and I think that was something Milton just instinctively also was constantly sucking in data just from ordinary interactions and just hugely enthusiastic
0: in doing it you know you may be able to settle a question I don't know the answer to I've never heard discussed which is uh when, when I went when I went to grad school at Chicago in '76, uh, there was a popular T-shirt for sale, or that somebody made available of Milton Friedman walking down a street in Hyde Park with George Stigler. Yeah, George Stigler was like, I'm guessing maybe six five. Yeah, and Milton, like that. Milton was probably five four.
1: Oh, maybe. less than that,
0: five three <laughs> or two even maybe. Yeah, uh, and well, they were young. They're both yep. at their maximum height in this photograph. Yeah, but, right, right, you're right. But, but they also, I think, didn't they play tennis? Oh, my, yes.
1: Oh, Milton loved tennis.
0: So I'd love, you're talking about his enthusiasm. Uh, I'd love to see a video of that ten, of one of their tennis matches. But my, my question is, do you know who was the usual winner in those matches? Because although Milton would have a disadvantage in leverage of being 5'3 or so, uh, I would think his competitive nature might help make up some of that gap.
1: Do you have any idea how they did? I don't have specific evidence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but I do know this. He was, he certainly was confident in his ability as a tennis player because I managed to get him to come to Erie maybe three, four, five times during the, course of our activity together for various reasons, both to show the flag, so to speak, so people didn't think I was, <laughs> uh, can't, you know, can't believe Chittester's really working with this Nobel Prize winner and, uh, and, to, and to make sure that they realized that it, we were going ahead. And Milton then said, Bob, could you arrange for me to play tennis while I'm there? And, and I did. I got a hold of somebody who belonged to a tennis club uh, uh, that was fairly close to where, we, where our offices were. And then, I, and then Milton said, and go to, go to uh, Kmart, I think, at, at that point, and buy me some tennis shoes. Well, I had no idea what to buy, but I went and bought the shoes. And he went and he played, and I talked to the people afterwards. Now, they never talked about score, but they said, oh, yeah, he's a really good player. Yeah, I'm sure he was ferocious, uh would be my main <laughs> Oh yeah.
0: <would> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Just as he would be in everything that he wanted to yeah. explore and
1: experience for sure. Ferocious but not mean spirited.
0: Yeah. No, yes. no, he would not be a yes. dirty player. He would be a no. he'd be a happy, happy warrior. Um a very happy warrior. So I talked earlier about um his self confidence. And uh I don't know if I've ever told this story, but you know, after he was on uh Econ Talk in 2006, and I think I was the last, as far as I know, I was the last person to interview him. Uh, We talked about a bunch of things, but one of the things we talked about was monetary policy. And I told him, I said, you know, Milton, you you made this claim during the conversation. I, I went back and looked at the data, and I'm not so sure that that relationship between money supply and what might have been nominal GDP at the time, I can't remember, but I said, you know, it looks pretty that looks as clear cut as you claimed, and he wrote back and he said, You know, you're looking at the wrong data. And he sent me a, a spreadsheet. <laughs> he wanted, you know, he had a different definite. He went was M, I can't remember, was M3 or M4 or M2, some different measure of money. But, um, uh, here was this man in his 90s still, uh, sending me a spreadsheet. It was, uh, he cared a lot about truth, and uh, but, but as I said, he was very confident his views on. On Monetary policy didn't change much over his lifetime. Uh, We're in the 50th anniversary of his 1970 New York Times Sunday magazine article uh, where he argues that the social responsibility of business is to make money, (laughs) make profit within the letter of the law, of course, without fraud uh, and deception. Uh, So I don't think he changed that, Uh, his his views on that. Is there anything that you were aware of during his lifetime that he either came to reconsider or recant or uh, admit some uncertainty about even? I
1: have a very, very significant answer to that. Uh, a, A quick footnote, I had occasion to also ask Hayek that question. What mistake did he make in life? You might find it interesting. He said my advocacy of a one government world. One world government. One world government that apparently he, uh, at least in the early stages of his career, thought that was a good idea. Until he said, I came to the recognition that if it was one world government, it means there was only gonna be one and it could be a dictatorship and it could be whatever. Yeah. you need competition. And it needed competition. Well, in Milton's case, That was was Hayek. Hayek. Yeah, that was Hayek. In Milton's case, it was uh, was quite different. Um, And it related to Hong Kong and China Hmm. in that Milton, and from the very beginning, the, the, the mantra that I picked up from Milton instantly was, Economic, personal, political freedom are a package. You cannot separate them. If you try to separate them, you're not going to end up with the results that you want. Yep. So his prediction that when China liberalized in the economic area, he he was, of course, convinced that that would lead to a liberalization in both personal and political freedom. And we were talking about, why, why we had why we had seen quote success of free market capitalism and yet government sizes kept growing, et cetera, et cetera. But in the context of that, he said, well, in the case of China and Hong Kong, he said I realized had to I did not realize and I had to had to come to it that without rule of law, it would not happen. That you. Rule of law has to be the fourth ingredient. Economic, personal, and political freedom uh, can only, you you will only end up with all of them if you have rule of law. One law applies to everybody. And of course, that's not what the case is with Beijing and China. And now they're taking over Hong Kong. And by the way, Milton... I think Milton would, while he was, he was surprised, uh, say, the last year of his life. He was surprised that uh, Beijing hadn't clamped down on Hong Kong already.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's taken longer than I thought, too. Yeah, (laughs) he he was amazed it lasted that long. When I interviewed Milton in 2006… And of course, those are those interviews are still available. You can we'll link to them. You can find them in our archive. You can Google them and find them. And uh, we tra- we transcribe those online as well. Before we were regularly transcribing econ talk. Now we do that as well for every episode. But um, I went back and I w- read Capitalism and Freedom, and the first part of that interview is about capitalism and freedom. Um. And I told Milton I was struck by how many of the ideas in that book, which were extremely radical when he wrote about them in 1962, and some of them wow. he had been writing about before, how many of them had become mainstream. Um, you know, he, he argues for private social security, he argues for flexible exchange rates, he argues for a volunteer army, he argues to get rid of price supports for agriculture. He has an inor- a, a huge menu of of things he would. Getting rid of corporate subsidies. He has a huge menu of, of policy proposals, which at the time were viewed as ridiculous, impossible uh, vouchers, being another one, school vouchers. And virtually every one of those ideas either happened or be, be entered the intellectual debate. Um, yeah. So he didn't win, but they became at least – they were on the table. And part of that, of course, had nothing – he would – he at the time, said it wasn't so much his doing, but we're not going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, But when I mentioned that to him, his reaction um, surprised me. He said, actually, I'm struck by how few of them have actually been successful. The Volunteer Army is the most obvious one. It's a radical, incredibly radical idea. Uh, Famous exchange, uh, I think it was with General Westmoreland, who said, I don't want a Volunteer Army. I don't want my country defended by mercenaries. And Milton said... Better mercenaries than slaves right uh, fighting against the coercive power of the draft now I don't know if Milton was right about that, but he did win that debate um but he his reaction at the time when I in two thousand and six was basically uh i I was mostly a failure most of these ideas uh we've made no progress on we've made no yeah. progress on no. agricultural price no. supports corporate subsidies um So, security, more personal responsibility, vouchers are only an occasional experiment. The the public school system remains very strong, and so on and so on. Uh, I'm curious about your being having been in the trenches with Milton. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? I I have something of a pessimistic, quixotic feeling as well that despite our best efforts, uh, I totally
1: agree. We've had very little impact. Very little impact. I agree with Milton's assessment. And, and it's it's a it's a huge frustration to me uh, as I close out my career um, that somehow the movement has not been able to marshal uh better arguments for any and all of those to me, they are still solidly useful uh ideas in terms of how to deal with very critical public policy issues now i the only the, the the only thing that i can report in terms of and i and 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 in, in this instance it's not a direct correlation but in the broader sense of why why did the collapse of the soviet union why did the initial liberalization of china in terms of the economy uh why 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 in spite of all that if you look at the size of governments around the world they have grown exponentially since since the berlin wall came down and 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 our ability to stop the growth of government seems to be close to zero it it just keeps going on and on and on and i in discussing this with milton i said the only argue, only answer i can come up with in terms of why is that the case and it is this egalitarian streak in human beings. Very powerful. It is powerful. And uh, we did a, a, a TV, uh, public TV special called Work and Happiness. And uh, uh, in the initial development of it, I, I held the position that, well, we're going to look at welfare, so we should look at the value and importance of private welfare, and that that, that was a better way to go at the, the problem. Uh, uh, Phil Harvey, who was, who was very involved in it, and he, he wrote a book or related to it, he disagreed with that and he persuaded me, changed my whole perspective. And I, I don't know why it took me so long to come to this uh, conclusion that if you have a free society in which people are electing their government you will have a government safety net period that i think human nature is such that uh, the the temptation to use the power to tax the power to be able to take away money in order to provide that safety net it will be a temptation too great for, uh, for the populace to ignore. or uh, And therefore, our goal should always be focusing on, and this is the pragmatic kind of approach that Milton would take, on structuring that welfare program to reduce the amount, to ensure the maximum return, the maximum achievement of your goal, which is to bail people out when they need it, but but have a structure in which they can get out quickly, and it and it's 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 that emergency support they need when the world has collapsed around them. But you but you don't structure it, and, and as you know, economists know. My gosh, the ta- the the effective tax on somebody who leaves welfare and takes a minimum wage job is what 120 percent or something. I mean, well. You can't expect people get to make poor. that kind of sacrifice. Yeah.
0: Well, it's funny you mention that because um, one of the things I didn't mention in, in Milton's list of policy preferences, of course, which I should have, is the negative income tax, yeah. which is his idea that we would eliminate the complex welfare systems that implicitly tax effort uh, and have that effect you're talking about and replace it with a single program. And of course, that idea is now on the table as a universal, so-called universal basic income. And just one more idea <laughs> that's that's uh, in the mainstream. That's right. Um, I'm gonna let me give you a different. I'm gonna give you a, a more optimistic take uh, on on the freedom movement. Of course, one idea for why we failed isn't the egalitarian streak. It's that we're just wrong. Um, yeah, uh, we're just wrong about how the world works. We can't persuade people about it because we're not right. Uh, the facts aren't on our side and so on. Now, I'm going to, with all my uh, uh, epistemological humility, I, I want to reject that at least for the purposes of this conversation and propose a different uh, aspect of the problem, which is that there's an enormous difference between the Soviet Union and, say, a Sweden. Uh, sometimes they both get called socialists. Uh, it's a fundamental abuse of the word, or at yeah. least it's not a very helpful use of the word, because in one of them, the means of production, the allocation of workers, the salaries of people, allocate who got to live where, was totally controlled by a centralized state that was fundamentally corrupt. And was corrupt, whether it was because it was socialist or communist, doesn't matter. It was no. corrupt because it was had no competition and it inevitably brought out the worst in people, which um, – you know Hayek warned us about in the Road to Serfdom, in the chapter "Who Rises to the Top." It's just a natural uh, problem, and so I think it is by looking at the size of government as a measure of the success of Friedman and others, maybe we're making a fundamental error. What's happened, and, and I'm I'm prompted to this partly by your earlier remark that that the Chicago won the Cold War or Milton won the Cold War. And i throw in Hayek as well and, the, yeah, and, I uh, agree. and by Mises yeah. and the socialist calculation debate, that they won the intellectual argument uh, about whether markets work better than, than top-down allocation of all resources. And then they won the practical argument because the people in the Soviet Union didn't live so well, and Milton would have emphasized that. Uh, he, yeah. In that 2006 interview, he said, oh, I didn't persuade people that inflation is caused by money. New Zealand did because when they stopped Britain, it, inflation went down. Uh, and so he was very much a pragmatist in that way, but my point is is that I think you can make the argument that it's true that government continues to grow, but it grows in a very different way than it would have grown had Milton and others not made the case the way that they did. And in particular, it grows in the safety net sense, but, it, but the interventionist top-down folks, whether they're well-motivated as they often are or not, as they sometimes are. They have made little or no headway in allocating uh, resources generally, meaning what businesses do, what products are cr- created. And I often make the point that, you know, as depressing as, as you and I might find it, uh, that the size of government hasn't – not only hasn't uh, shrunk, it's all, we've been, you know, all we've done is maybe have it grow a little more slowly and lately not so much. Uh, it's still the case – that a person of creativity and enterprise can flourish in America in a way that they can't elsewhere. And that's because we still let people get fabulously rich if they produce something great and lose all their money when they, when they, when they don't produce something great. Yeah. And I, I just want to add just one more thing, because I think it's important, given that we're talking about Milton's legacy. You know, Milton always liked to say, that capitalism is a profit and loss system not just a profit system uh it's a profit and loss system and that it's really important to let businesses fail and had milton been alive in 2008 and 9 when when the bailouts occurred he would have been the most eloquent uh opponent of those deba- of those bailouts and it's a tragedy to me that we did not have a voice as uh, eloquent and powerful as his intellectually and in terms of communication
1: ability to make that case. I would agree with that other than I want to reference your discussion with Glenn Lowry and say, I agree with that, but it bothers me that this arrow of history is headed down some roads that are, that could be devastating to this country. And, and, and are we, are we sensitive to what's going on? I mean, you and Glenn certainly were. Yeah, we're in a, we're in a minority right now. I, that's right. And 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 recognize how critically important this is, and begin to mount some type of, of response that could be effective. Well, I think uh, we've the part of the problem is we you
0: mentioned the uh, egalitarian urge of human beings, which Hayek traces back to the family. Um, yeah. Walter Williams. I Often quote him, you know he says the, the family's a socialist institution, and I always like to point out we were raised in that socialist institution, every one of us almost yeah and uh it's a natural urge that we want to be taken care of, that we look for refuge from uh from danger to to things larger than ourselves, that we want to merge with something larger than ourselves, first it's the family, and then it's you know maybe um that one world government, so I think it's a natural human urge, but in you know i think in in the last forty years. The ability of people to use data to argue that there's been no economic progress in the United States has persuaded a lot of people that I think, you know, as many listeners know, I'm skeptical about that there's a lot of other information out there. So uh, it's true we have work to do still, as always. I'd like to conclude with a poem, if you don't mind. I want you to conclude with a poem, Bob, but before you do, I want you to say something about poetry generally.
1: Poetry and poems well carefully selected, has the ability to emotionalize an idea in a way that uh, the poem I want to read, uh, I, I would hope would almost bring chills to people. Um, and, and, and do so in the context of making a very serious point about free market capitalism. And so I'm always looking for poems that, uh, that have that element to it, that I can use them to point out. One I read is Hay to the Horses, and the guy that uh, bucked hay, and he said, I started bucking hay when I was 16. I sure would hate to do that all my life, and damn it, that's just what I've gone and done. Well, then I, then I raise with students. I say, now, do you believe him? Did he really hate bucking hay that much? He claims he did. But what did he do in life? Well, he bucked hay. So I've got to believe that at least he might have had various thoughts about. Well, I'd love to do something else, but it never rose to the point level where he liked enough about bucking the hay and the outdoors and all of that that he just hung in there. So I use I and then I started reading poems at business lunches and business meetings. I mean, right in the middle of the discussion. And Rob Long has now stolen that from me. We had a retirement party a few years ago, and, and they got people to record a few comments. And he said, Bob, I have to admit to you that I have stolen your idea. <laughs> because he said, I now read poems at, at dinners and at uh, lunches. Sweet. It just And it surprises people. Part of it is there's the surprise factor. But it brings to bear... Powerful communication uh, um, approach powerful rhetoric in the form of a poem that you can't duplicate in in a strictly prose sense um and
0: uh, it's like a picture's worth a thousand words, a poem can be worth ten thousand oh if it's
1: uh, you know exactly and I, by the way i I somewhat challenge that i see suggest to me a picture that would even come close to having the impact of the word mom (laughs) i mean you just can't mom is such a or dad i mean other things but let me share this poem with you because i think it illustrates what i've been trying to explain and the point that i use it to make is free market capitalism creates the discretionary income that allows for human diversity and the arts and culture to flourish now you can accomplish the same thing if you want to live in a in a city state uh, uh with the Med- Medici's being your dictators yeah. you can accomplish it in the soviet union where they contract with people to do art. Uh, anyone that spends any time looking at that art knows how unsuccessful that is. You you can do it like FDR did, where you commission people to go out and do films and stuff. And again, the result is not of the highest order. But here is a poem by Ted Kuser called A Box of Pastels that I think absolutely grabs at the notion that our lives are so much better off because of that aspect of human creativity and that that can only flourish if you have a prosperous enough society that people can afford to devote themselves to that. I once held on my knees a simple wooden box in which a rainbow lay dusty and broken. It was a set of pastels that had years before belonged to the painter Mary Cassette, and all of the colors she'd used in her work lay open before me. Oh, those hues she'd most used, the peaches and pinks, were worn down to the stubs, while the cool colors, violet ultramarine, had been set, scarcely touched, to one side. She'd had little patience with darkness, and her heart held only a measure of shadow. I touched the warm dust of those colors, her tools, and left there with light on the tips of my fingers. My guest today has been Robert
0: Chittister. Bob, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ.